Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The Cultural Revolution in China of the 1960s, led by Mao Zedong, imposed a major change to the nation where one in every five people in the world live. Da Chen was born in 1962 in southern China to a once wealthy family, by that time despised for its capitalist past. At the age of 23, After graduating with top honors and serving as an assistant professor at the Beijing Language Institute, Da Chen came to the United States with $30 and a bamboo flute. He won a full scholarship to Columbia University Law School and later settled in the Hudson River Valley. His book, Colors of the Mountain, tells the story of his childhood, his life, and his experiences. I spoke with Da Chen by phone from New York in the spring of 2000 and asked him to begin by telling us about his childhood in China. My childhood in China uh, in the early 60s early 70s was really miserable because I was son of a disgraced landlord and communism regarded any private ownership as a sin but also uh, a crime as well so uh, our, and the red armies took away our property and um, also labeled us with this burdensome label of a landlord family that really made us the enemy of the people instantly so we had a very hard time growing up uh, I've always Cultural Revolution to me, which started in 1966, was just seeing my parents getting beaten up, my grandfather getting chased around and stoned and rocked on um, by the kids in the street. And myself also sort of became a political a victim of a political persecution when one uh, uh, politically issues third grade teacher made me, wanted me to write a confession against my family. And I couldn't. I ran to run away from the, to the persecution because he threatened to put me in jail. Um, what was the confession that they wanted you to write? Well, it all came from a little incident where um, when they asked me uh, what happened to my homework, and I said, well, I threw the homework, which was quoting Mao's uh, quotations. I said, I said I threw it in a manhole, manure hole, because uh, it got rained on a wet, smeared up because, because it was Chinese brush calligraphy. And she, he took offense. He said that you openly insulted Mao's name, good name of Mao Zedong. And there was an anti-counter-revolutionary act in their books. So he said that you should write a confession to tell people that your parents taught you to do that deliberately. And I said, no, they didn't. And he said, you, yes, you did. Um, if you don't write a confession, you have to, I'm going to get the police involved, and you'll be in jail in no time. And as the legal system stands there in China, accusation is pretty much fiction. Um, well, I ran, and I 
ran like a political fugitive. I was only nine years old, and that was a pretty bad feeling to feel um, uh, as a political fugitive. You were doomed, no future, and everybody was out there to get you. I hid behind the, our closed doors and watching these carefree kids going and coming from school, admiring them. Uh, miserable days. When um, we talk about the uh, government forcing someone to uh, provide a confession in, in China, do most of the people provide that confession or are m more of them resistant as you were as a nine-year-old? Is there any kind of common thread that you could talk about? Well, uh, cultural revolution, which took place between 1966 and 75, was a very, very warped, wrong time. Everything was right was wrong and wrong was right, um, which is very different from what China is today. Um, um, at that time, um, confessions were forced. People got beaten up. People like my father, my grandfather got my father. I saw my father hung up by both thumbs. And uh, I saw my mother get sla getting slapped across the face just for no reason whatsoever by a, a, a cadre. Um, they make you make make confessions that you, you, you would never make. And they torture you until you've confessed. And uh, that was the way it went at that time. Do you have an understanding of what the goal was of the Chinese government to treat the citizens this way during the Cultural Revolution? I think sheer pleasure of inflicting torture and pain. There wasn't a, an overriding political goal? Uh, when, when you say pleasure in, in, uh, in torture, uh, to create a fear, a community of fear? I think the political goal at that time during the Cultural Revolution was very confused. This whole political movement called Cultural Revolution was, uh, first of all, a mistake. Secondly, uh, something that came up by Mao himself as a personal uh, manner to take revenge against some of his um, uh, associates who were trying, who were getting a little bit too ambitious around him. And he got paranoid. He said that I'm going to start something to get rid of all those bad elements within my government. And that that cultural thing started out as a personal thing spread. And then uh, by the time it reached a little town called Yellowstone, it became a sort of a personal, um, it was a, it was so twisted, tortured. There was no, it lost political goal. There was no political goal to begin with. It was all a, a way of uh, making chaos out of the society. I, I don't see any systematic philosophical underpinning. Uh, there is not. When you say chaos out of the society, was that chaos felt nationwide? Absolutely. It was all closed. Everybody, all the kids were out there marching, shouting Mao's slogan. Uh, everybody actually armed. The armies had to be sent to schools. Tsinghua University, one of the most prominent ones, the main gate was uh, guarded by tanks. Students was a very popular term called Chuanliang. People students could actually go to the rail of the train and stop the train, climb up the train and say, take me to Beijing because I want to see Mao Zedong. And the train would stop and all the red guards would climb up. So they start this uh, traveling all over. Everybody will be going in all directions uh, to everywhere to meet different people in different parts and to talk about the revolution. It was a madhouse. 
And it existed for about 10 years. Exists for the first five years at least. And they, they took out teachers and they uh, beat them up. They, um, most of the teachers were having a bad time. The professors in school, for, um, some of them lost their life. A lot of them uh, were, were, were put in jail. And uh, it was, it was I, I, don't, I couldn't really see any meaning to the whole thing. It was a huge chaos. And I don't see any benefit there at all. What effect do you think uh, this period in China's history has had on the subsequent generation? Obviously on you, you've chosen to live in another part of the world. Right. Fear. Fear nationwide? Oh, yeah. So it's, it's fear of the government, or is it fear of the unknown? How, how would you characterize that? I think all of the above, but mainly fear of the unknown. And uh, there is so much unknown there. Um, one thing that that is wonderful about a system, political system like what we have in America, is the Constitution. The words that were supposed to protect the basic rights of human beings, the citizens, and even more so, so many ways of interpreting those words and uh, people fighting over what is the right way to use these wonderful words. But uh, in any country that is being led by a single leader, uh, the words of that person becomes constitution. And a person is prone to be changing his mood and his mind uh, as often as the changing clouds in a spring day, um, the whole, the fate of a country is in the grip of his mood swing. What has restrained the vast number of people in China uh, from trying to change the form of government? Is it the military? Is there a cultural background? Is it something else? I think both. Uh, Chinese have always believed in the fact that uh, their leaders are also fatherly. They are also fathers. They are masters. And uh, we should obey them not just because they are right, but also because of the position. Uh, the old emperors we regard as Tianzi, heavenly sons. They were sent down from heaven to rule people. And I think the leaders have taken on a lot of that kind of uh, connotation, that sort of, uh, uh, that sort of shades of uh, power. They are not CEOs in the sense of American company or American president, they are really uh, entrenched power system that was supposed to be there and should be there forever. And that was reinforced by the, you know, military, the presence of military and uh, fear. And the military supports them, it keeps them in the power, and the military imposes the fear to the uh, anyone who may choose to challenge the power. Yeah, and it surprises me. When I study American law, that uh, to know that in America, uh, military are really, really uh, called upon to uh, attack their own people. I'd like to ask you about that and, and uh, the source of your surprise. But first, I want to tell our listeners that today we're talking with Da Chen, a young man who grew up in China at the age of 23, he came to the United States and entered Columbia University Law School. He has a new book called Colors of the Mountain, 
which describes his childhood in China as the child of uh, landlords or property owners and his treatment and their treatment during his uh, formative youthful years. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Da, the surprise that you talk about. Tell us a little more about that. Well, um, from my experience when I was growing up in China, um, whenever there's trouble in the street, whenever uh, any people want to make any trouble, the armies are there to take you out, uh, shot you, <laughs> to shoot you. Um, and uh, also, as we have seen in Tiananmen Square, you know, people with armies were just really out there, and uh, there was no uh, constitutional guarantee saying that, no, 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 at some point you have to, to have certain trigger being pulled in order to uh, to be able to call upon the army to do one, two, three, four, A, B, C things. Um, and, you know, in here, in America, there's a lot of sort of a guarantee. There's a lot of, lot of uh, people looking into the situation. You have to go through the Congress. You have to do this and that in order to be able to, uh, to allow the president to uh, call upon army to, you know, attack their own people. The army is supposed to be attacking the enemy of the people not the people. So uh, a lot of new legal concepts attacked in my mind when I was studying the law at the Columbia. <laughs> and the most amazing part is really the uh, constitutional law and uh, the contract law that sort of helped me redefine human relationships. And you begin to see the, see the relationships between, you know, constitutional law to me seems like a sort of contract law between among the people and the states and the government, different branches of government. It's a very wonderful uh, set of uh, rules and regulations. The only thing that could be there to sort of guarantee people not the whims and the smooth swims of, uh, of a particular, le- particular leader like uh, the uh, uh, Cubans, uh, uh, Castro. What do you mean? I remember that uh, right after the Cultural Revolution, when Deng Xiaoping, who was uh, a pretty good leader, uh, he took over the leadership after the Cultural Revolution and changed China in a wonderful way. And we used to quote one of his sayings, which goes like this, um, no matter what you are, a white cat or a black cat, as long as you can catch a rat, you are a good cat. And that phrase, he probably spoke it in a wonderful, poetic, exuberant uh, way, and had been used as sort of a constitutional quotation. Um, you see a building coming up, a big uh, skyscraper is coming up, and there will be a slogan, a band, a slogan going across the building that says that, white cat, black cat, catch the rat, good cat, you know. Uh, so it's being used as a sort of support for all the right things or wrong things they were doing. <laughs> they would say, well, we're doing this because then says, uh, white cat, black, black cat, that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's sort of an example of how, uh, how things uh, are done, how one leader, what he says, is going to be able to affect how everybody thinks and what everybody does. This is something said by Deng Xiaoping, the leader who came after Mao died. I see. After the revolution was over. And in fact, immediately after the revolution was over, there's one fellow uh, called Hua Guofeng. He was installed as the president of China. And the only reason why he got the job was because somehow he told everybody that Mao told me, if I am a leader, 
you could rest in peace. You know, uh, that's a wonderful phrase that he keep using, so that people would、uh, should look up to him as a a new leader. Because Mao said that if Hua Guofeng is in place as a leader, I could rest in peace. <laughs> Interesting how the、uh, the comparisons work.、Um... As we enter into an election time in this country, right? I mean, literally, that's that's like saying、uh, having Clinton say something like, "If Gore is in place,、uh, I could rest in peace." You know? Yeah. Well, maybe he could. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know, but、yeah. people listen to him. You know, that's the problem, right? Yeah. And we have the right not to think that way, right? That's right. That's right. The right not to think that way. To sort of yeah, whatever you say, you know. So tell us what.、Um, Um, motivated you and allowed you to leave China and come to the United States fifteen、uh, years ago.、Um, I、uh, struggled my way through college and became a, a wonderful student, wonderful graduate.、Uh, the school gave me. I was a graduate of、uh, Beijing Language and Culture University. I became a wonderful student. They said that、uh, because you're the best, so we want you to be a teacher here. So they gave me an offer that I could not refuse. Even though at that time I sort of want to be a journalist, you know, an interpreter, I was able to speak English. Then I met two、uh, American missionaries、um, who were—they were a couple. They came from Union College, from Lincoln, Nebraska. They were Seventh-day Adventist、uh, believers, and they were there sort of in the guise of teaching English. But truly, they were missionaries.、Um, one of them, the husband, Mr. Robert Walters. Was a composer, very gifted composer and talented conductor as well. And I asked him. We were colleagues in that college. They were teaching English. I was teaching some basic English as well. And I asked him one day,、uh, "Do you want to meet some Chinese politicians,、uh, musicians?" <laughs> He said, "Yeah, I've been waiting for someone to ask me that question for a long time." And I said, "Good." So I matched them. I, I introduced him to a very well-known conductor, and he eventually got invited to conduct.、Uh, Central Philharmonic Orchestra for one night to premiere his own composition, and by doing that, he he made history、uh, for becoming the first foreigner to conduct his own composition with the Central Philharmonic Orchestra, which was greatly known for、uh, playing all the revolutionary songs during the Cultural Revolution. And from that on, he said that good, I'm going to introduce you、uh, to Union College and give you a scholarship. And maybe I was sort of smoker and drinker at that time. He coming from religious school, he thought that、uh, you know I, this boy really needs to be cleansed. <laughs> <laughs> did he succeed? He he did. He wrote all letters, and、uh, I said, "Now what?" He said, "Well, pray." <laughs> did he、um, encourage you or succeed in encouraging you to adopt his religious faith? Well.、Um... He didn't have to do that, but I think just by by being he himself. I mean, when I saw these couple, they were they looked so wonderful. They had this special glow, and、uh, what they did, the way they behaved, they actually very brave people. At that time, in the early eighties, I think it was a crime to get together all the、uh, religious believers to go and do worship. So,、uh, but he was brave, if, if brave enough, to gather all the Chinese individuals who were already Seventh Day Adventists. Believers together and worship together, and he, since he was a violinist as well, he pr- he played the music, and Chinese would sing in Chinese the hymns, and he would sing English the hymns, and it doesn't matter the hymns or hymns, 
you know, God could hear them. So <laughs> it works. Did you become a Seventh-day Adventist? Yes, I did. How does that compare uh, in your the eyes of your parents and your brothers and sisters to uh, their religious beliefs? Well, Buddhism was really, to them, and actually to me, wasn't as much a belief, uh, but more of a soft, sort of a cultural thing, something we grew up, a part of the food, a part of the language we spoke, and a part of the land, because you see Buddhist shrines everywhere. Um, and this is a sort of, to me, a sort of intellectually challenging uh, religion that you choose when you grow up. And uh, they, they had nothing to say about it. <laughs> did, did you find a similarity or a disparity in uh, your childhood uh, learnings of Buddhism um, and the spirituality associated with that when you adopted um, the philosophy of the Seventh-day Adventist religion? Well, I think the most beautiful thing among all the religions, definitely between uh, Buddhism and uh, and uh, SDA Church, is that uh, is the, the belief that we all believe in good goodness. There's an ultimate uh, redemption, and uh, I mean, you'll never be redeemed totally, but uh, you're always on the way to be redeemed. Um, and uh, we all believe in good things, that people being good, being kind to each other, help each other, and not being mean and being bad. Today we're talking with Da Chen, a young man who grew up in China at the age of 23, he came to the United States and entered Columbia University Law School. He has a new book called Colors of the Mountain, which describes his childhood in China as the child of uh, landlords or property owners and his treatment and their treatment during his uh, formative youthful years. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Tell us about the kind of legal work that you're doing now. Uh, actually, I'm not doing any legal work now. I'm a full-time writer. I'm finished with the first draft of my sequel to this book called Sounds of the River, and uh, hopefully to see it in print uh, sometimes this time next year. What does that book talk about, uh, the next segment in your life? Right, it picks up from uh, where I left off at the end of this book, Colors of Mountain, and uh, it takes me all the way to 1985 when I was uh, flying off to go to Lincoln, Nebraska, leaving China. I I sort of um, I left aside my uh, my professional work as a banker in Wall Street, and I it, it, I'm happy at writing, and I also feel certain responsibility as a member of this so-called lost generation, uh, and I I wanted to to use this wonderful medium of a uh, media of a. Uh, English language, which I consider as a sort of musical notation to uh, recompose my some of the forgotten and lost memories during this period. And I feel see myself very, very lucky, fortunate to be able to um, write about the memories that took place in such a distant, remote land so far away, so long ago, in the contemporary English to be read by hopefully millions of um, English readers, um, so that people will gain a better understanding. 
Politically, uh, within the government of China, are you uh, welcome to return to your native country? Well, I think I'm so insignificant uh, on either side of the Pacific Ocean. I don't think I make. I'm just a small fish. I don't think <laughs> I've written a, a book that chronicle my uh, uh, personal family history, my personal own life. Actually, uh, I nobody pays any attention to it. Nobody really cares what I do. <laughs> Have you been back? Yes, I was back as a as an attorney uh, working for Scatter Knobs, a law firm in New York, in Beijing, and I was. A few years ago, that that summer, I was probably probably the only Chinese uh, wearing Western suit, riding a bicycle, delivering exorbitant legal services in Beijing, sweating. <laughs> did you become an American citizen? Yes, I did. Uh huh. Yes, yes, I did. And do you speak to your children in Chinese? Um. I try to, but my wife is an American-born Chinese. She's much more comfortable in the in English, and that was the language that we that we always been communicating with. But I'm trying to, you know, feed my children Chinese food and make them use chopsticks to uh, Sunday Chinese schools and um, go to Chinatown as often as as I can. But I think the biggest influence eventually in their life will be the presence of my mother in their life. Because she's not only teaching them the language, she's also teaching them how to be Chinese just by being Chinese. So she's come to New York. Oh, my mother is is living with us. How about your brothers and sisters? Uh, my brother has become a、uh, general manager of a very big paper mill in Fujian Province. Something he always wants to be, and、uh, my two sisters are doing quite well、uh, in China. One of the sisters here is here with me. She's a clothing designer.、Um, so, thank God, all things turn out, turn out to be well. Yeah. Well, Don Chen, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. I read a book called God of Small Things, written by a、uh, Arundhati Roy, a brilliant Indian.、Uh, Female writer is the book that I. It's very quite similar to Colors of the Mountain. It's also edited by by the same editor at Random House and Godoff.、Um, I that was the book that I that I wish it would never end. Even though I sort of the plot is very confusing, but I enjoy every word, every chapter that of the book. It's so beautifully written. Well, Da Chen, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much. Da Chen is the author of *Colors of the Mountain*. The book he recommends is *The God of Small Things* by Arundhati Roy. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website. RadioCurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 
West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>